0: If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, where we're going to be looking at exposing doctrines of demons some more. I uh, come to this text, and I think, you know, I think I could probably do all five verses in one week. And then I think, well, no, I think I better put it in two weeks. And then I thought, no, no, there's some really good stuff here. I should probably slow down a little bit more and do it in three weeks. And then I thought, what's the hurry? (laughs) I mean, why am I in a hurry? I mean, it's not like I've run out of things to say. Every morning I'm telling my wife, I've got too much to say and not enough time. So I don't know how long it's going to take, but we're going to go as slow as we need to to get everything out of here that you need to hear. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of false doctrine and apostasy that accompanies it, had this to say in a sermon entitled, The Civ Not long after the days of the apostles, yea, even in their days, God was sifting His church in the sieve of heresy. There arose men who taught contrary to the truth, as it is in Jesus' cunning and smooth-spoken men, who by slight of words and craftiness of argument led aside many and perverted the faith of not a few. Ever since those times, notorious heresies have at various seasons afflicted the church like epidemics among sheep, deadly and hard to cure. Professors have fallen before the hurricane of false doctrine like leaves in autumn, thick as leaves of the valambrosa have been the apostates who have been hurried hither and thither by the fitful winds of novel opinions, subtle refinings, and pestilent errors, denying the Lord that bought them, denying the cardinal doctrines of the faith, and so perishing in their iniquity." End quote. That little quote there by Spurgeon is addressing the very same thing that our text is addressing this morning, apostasy. And apostasy happens when demons influence men to propagate errors that lead people who are professing believers, who think they're believers but are not, away from the faith. And we have learned from the first two verses of chapter 4 of First Timothy that there are three dangers we need to be on guard against. We have learned that we need to be on guard against apostasy because in the latter days some will fall away from the faith. And we have learned that we need to be on guard against demonic doctrines, those things spoken by hypocritical lie speakers influenced by Satan. And third, we need to be on guard against those who spread demonic doctrines. These are things we're always to be on guard against, always to be watching out for, because they are in the church. Paul told the Ephesian elders that these savage wolves would arise from among them and come in from without, not sparing the flock. And having warned of the danger of apostasy in verses 1 and 2... A warning of the demonic doctrines and the hypocritical lie-speakers who spread them. He then gets into exposing and refuting two of the demonic doctrines in verses 3 through 5. And both of these errors fall into a category of what is called asceticism. That is a word that describes carnality which is wrapped up in religion. It is basically false doctrine wearing the garb of a priest. Asceticism is the practice of trying to make oneself righteous before God. It is the practice of trying to save oneself through man-made religion. It is to be sanctified by works and not by grace, which is really no sanctification at all, but in fact it is... Carnality, it is sin, it is legalism in the purest form. It is an attempt to bypass what God's Word says. It is an attempt to supplant the means of grace that God has provided for us to grow in sanctification and to replace that with man-made rules and fleshly acts. And since all error is best seen, in the mirror gilded with the truth, we are now going to look at the truth before we look at the error and remind us of what we studied last week. You remember last week we talked about sanctification by grace. What is sanctification by grace? How is it that we are sanctified by grace? How can God call us to pursue righteousness, to pursue sanctification, to perfect holiness in the fear of God... And yet, that be by grace, if we are supposed to do it. And we talked about seven characteristics of sanctification, and we just want to review these quickly before we get into the text. First, there is no sanctification without first being saved by grace through faith alone. You have to be saved by grace. You have to be saved by faith. Because nothing else can save you. And if you aren't saved, then you are still marinated in sin through and through. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, and nothing you do. I don't care how religious it looks on the outside. Unbelievers are hostile towards God and cannot please Him. If you have never been sanctified through salvation, you are not being sanctified day to day. Everything you do is a stench in God's nostrils. Secondly, God is the only one who sanctifies us. By His grace and not by works. Just as we are saved by grace, so we are sanctified by grace. Men in their unconverted state are like rotten apples. And you can't make a rotten apple good. Only God, when performing a miracle, could take a rotten apple and make it fresh and crisp and acceptable to Him. And that is what does... Salvation does for us. It regenerates us. It makes us into a new creature. It transforms us from one glory to the next. Paul sternly rebuked the Galatians who had fallen into asceticism and legalism. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified... This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected in the flesh? Some people came in and said, oh yeah, you're saved by grace, man. You are saved by grace through faith. But if you don't do these things, you can't get to heaven. Asceticism. Third, sanctification is not only something that happens at salvation. Sanctification is also a process, the scriptures say. We progress in sanctification. Even though we are made holy in Christ, in our normal lives, as we live in our bodies, between salvation and glorification, we have to progress in sanctification. It is a process which we are to continually pursue by using God's means of grace. That leads us to the fourth characteristic, and that is you progress in sanctification as you learn to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has placed His Spirit in you and has baptized you into the body of Christ by His Spirit so that you can walk in His Spirit. And the important thing we need to remember is this, is that the Spirit always leads us in the same direction as the Word of God. Sometimes you run into the person who says, oh, God's leading me here. He's leading me to leave my wife. No, He's not. A spirit may be leading you to do that, but not the Holy Spirit. Only an unholy spirit would ever have you live contrary to the Word of God. A fifth characteristic is you progress in sanctification by submitting to and obeying the Word of God. And this fits very closely with walking in the Spirit. You cannot walk in the Spirit if you're disobeying the Word of God. Because the Spirit will always move in the same direction as the Word. So you must go to the Word, find out what God's Word says, and then submit yourself to that Word. God gives us the Word of His grace that we might grow in sanctification. Six, you progress in sanctification when you continually ask God for help in prayer. Prayer is when you go to God and acknowledge, God, I can't do it. I do not have the resources in and of myself. I do not have the resources of my own nature in my own self to do what I need to do before you. So I'm coming to you and I'm, I'm begging you, I'm asking you, give me what I need. And as you are constantly relying on God in prayer, as you are relying on the word of God, as you are walking in the Holy Spirit, as you are saved by grace, then this should cause something to happen in your life. And it should cause you to continually give thanks to God. Because He has saved you, because He has given you the resources, because everything good that has ever happened to you, and everything bad, bad, that has ever happened to you, is all used by God to work together for your good. That's what the Scriptures teach. And so we are to constantly give thanks to God, not only for the things that we have, but for every circumstance God has placed us in. Every circumstance that His providence has brought us and we are to give thanks to Him because God uses everything in our lives for our good and His glory. So the Christian is one who continually lives in a state of thanksgiving. He continually relies on all these means of grace that God has given him to to give God glory and to progress in sanctification. And if he ever... Any one of those things he ever denies, if he ever tries to be saved by works or ever tries to walk in the flesh or ever tries to walk contrary to God's word or he doesn't continually rely on God in prayer and he doesn't give thanks in all things, in every circumstance, he is sinning and he is not sanctified and he is not being sanctified. And so we must be extra careful to use those things that God has given us to pursue the things that God tells us to pursue. And as long as we do that, we are not walking in the flesh, but we are being sanctified by grace. So having said that, we are now ready to look at the text. And I think as we go through this passage, uh, this week and next and maybe in next week, and I don't know about after that, but as we look at it, you will be able to see very clearly the errors that are spoken here. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 5 of First Timothy 4. Notice what Paul says. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the Word of God and prayer. Paul says in verse 3 that these hypocritical lie-speakers are first and foremost men who advocate abstaining from foods and they forbid people to marry now at first glance when you look at that you think well jack that doesn't sound that demonic i mean what is the big deal why why is it such a big deal and why is it such a demonic doctrine that you know we abstain from foods or we tell people not to get married well let's look at each of these uh, one at a time and we'll see Throughout history, there have been those who have tried to claim that that marriage is something evil, that uh, the physical relationship between a man and woman is something bad, something to be avoided, something that is not good. They've tried to say that, well, if you're married, you're being self-indulgent, you're 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 feeding the flesh. You are you are accepting a lower spiritual plane for your life because, you know, if you were spiritual like me, you would be single. And that's how they kind of played out at the beginning. And this was a demonic doctrine sowed in the early days of the church. And the first group who practiced it were the Essenes. These were um, the group who lived at Qumran. If you don't know where Qumran is, Qumran is down uh, by the Jordan River, by the Dead Sea. And it's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And the Essenes withdrew from society, dug holes in the, the sandstone cliffs, and they forbid Marriage, and no one could get married, and of course in one generation they went extinct. It's a good way to put an end to your movement. <laughs> they, they fell into this trap of asceticism, for, you know, don't eat this, and don't get married, and deny yourself all of these things, and that way you'll be holy before God. Then after that came the era of Gnosticism, which taught that all matter was evil. The Gnostics were these super-intellectuals, supposedly. They kind of... Uh, because they, they um, studied under certain people who had a higher knowledge, kind of like the guru mentality. You hang around a guru long enough, you know, you could be a guru too. And um, these people had this supposedly higher spiritual knowledge. And if you wanted to have the inside knowledge, you would have to sit under the teaching of these Gnostics. And the Gnostics believed that all matter was evil. That that all of the the physical things of the earth were evil, and so we were to deny it all as much as we could. We were to practice just severe self-denial. We were to reject those things that God had given us to be gratefully shared in by those who know and love the truth. And then after that came some other people. Saturnarius had followers who said that marriage was of Satan. Satan. Irenaeus, the early church father, said many abstained from various animal foods and multitudes were drawn away by feigned temperance. They were snared by demonic doctrines and led into rebellion against God under the guise of religion. And from the early days of the church, ascetic groups like the Encratites and the Titanites and the Catharites and the Montanites and the Meccaneans and all kinds of people I discovered... Taught that marriage was bad. You stay away from it. I mean, if you engage in that, and you are just them, you're not second best for your life, man. You're just sinning. In the 4th century, asceticism had reached its climax, not just in this area of marriage, but in all kinds of areas. There were monks who were doing all sorts of harsh things to themselves in order to try and be holy. And these, these were people who were considered, you know, these were the priests, these were the, the Catholic priests, these were the monks, these were the, like, like the people to revere. These were the people you would go to to have pray for you. They would do things like stand next to a cliff all night, and in case they fell asleep, they would plunge their ruin. It would keep them from falling asleep, you know, and they'd say, oh, I'm holy because, look, I stood there all night next to the edge. Now, think about that. There were people called the stylobites, people who would take a huge pole 30 feet or higher, plant it in the ground like a telephone pole, build a little platform on top, climb up there, and they would live on top of that pole for years. And they would rely on other people to feed them. They'd lower a rope down and people would you know, bring them food. They'd never take a shower. They'd live up there, do everything up there. Think about it. You can't hide up on top of a pole. And they lived there. I mean, it was, it was really getting out of control. Others would become so dirty and unkept that vermin would literally drop off of them when they walked. And these were the holy people. Why? Because they had denied themselves. Look how holy they were. Other people would starve themselves until they were emaciated and often died. And as the church at the very beginning kind of said, you know, these things aren't real good, pretty soon it adopted them. The early church fathers, Tertullian and Ambrose, believed that, quote, the extinction of the human race was to be preferred over the physical relationship in marriage. Augustine, he would counsel people and he would tell them this, if you're married, you abstain from any physical relationships. Just directly contradicting the word of God. The Roman Catholic Church taught that all those wishing to enter in the priesthood had to abstain from marriage. And the Roman Catholic Church taught that you could not be a priest and married too, and if you were, you couldn't love God's sheep like Christ wanted you to love them. According to the Vatican-approved Encyclopedia of Catholic Doctrine, quote, priestly celibacy is a non-negotiable doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, It had its origin in the Spanish Council of Elvira in 305 A.D. where the church prescribed celibacy for those who were ordained. And later in 1073, Pope St. Gregory VII enforced celibacy for all clergy by the Council of Trent in the 16th century. Virginity was hailed as the superior spiritual state. And by the time of the Reformation... The Catholic Church had imposed so many regulations upon those who were married that they had to totally abstain from any physical relationships for over half the days of a year. I mean, no wonder there was a Reformation. (laughs) I mean, think about it. They're telling people, no, don't, don't touch your wife. You stay away from her. In direct contradiction to the Word of God. Later, the superiority of celibacy was restated in the Second Vatican Council, and again in 1992, Pope John Paul II has said, quote, it is a distinctive virtue of the priest, end quote, and, quote, only by living this Trinitarian union can the priest love all the members of Christ's body with the love of Christ himself, end quote. In other words, if you're a pastor and you're married, you are sinning. If you are a pastor and you are married, you cannot love God's sheep like you're supposed to love them. This is just a lie from hell. It is asceticism. It is a doctrine of demons. Now, you you think, well, how could this happen? I mean, how how do teachings like this happen? How do they creep into the church? I mean, do they just invent them? Well, they come through hypocritical lie-speakers. John Calvin said this in his commentary on 1 Timothy, These prohibitions have their origin in hypocrisy that abandons true holiness and then looks for something else to hide behind. People who do not abstain from self-seeking, hatred, avarice, cruelty, and similar things try to attain a righteousness for themselves by abstaining from those things which God has not forbidden. Only hypocrites do this. So they can sin with impunity against that inner righteousness that the law requires. They conceal their inner wickedness in those outward observances which they drape over themselves like veils. He goes on to say, they do it to stop people from practicing what they are allowed to do. Whether it is done on a local or worldwide level, it is always a demonic tyranny, end quote. The rationale behind celibacy seems pious at first, and I'm going to tell you it in just a second. And as I and as I listen, I list these things, I want you to think about it, and you'll think, well, you know, the, I, I, isn't there a scripture that says that? I mean, doesn't it doesn't it doesn't the Bible teach that? I mean, that sounds pretty logical. That doesn't sound too fanatic. The first rationale behind celibacy is this it frees up time to devote yourself to ministry, to study. To pursue the things of God. Well, isn't that true? Sure. The person who isn't married has more time, doesn't he? They, they have more time. I mean, you don't have kids. You don't have the wife. You don't have a lot of things that you have to deal with when you're married. And so it's, it's pretty good. I mean, that doesn't seem very demonic. Secondly it keeps families they say from becoming too powerful in the church you know if a priest was to get married and have a family and his children would have children and pretty soon they'd all come to the same church pretty soon that family would would maybe sway the church maybe it would it corrupt the church and pretty soon the family would be run by family or the church would be run by family consensus rather than the word of god and that's not good and that's true it's not good and we don't want to have that happen right that's right we don't want to have that happen And so the Roman Catholic Church has made some rules. You can't be married if you're either a sister or a Roman Catholic priest. And they do go to the Scriptures, and then we want to look at these. Turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. And I'm just going to read you this. I'm not going to give you any context like I normally do, just because the only way they can make it say what they want to say almost is by ignoring the context. And then we'll look at the context in a minute. Now look at Luke 18, 28 through 30. And Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Now they interpret this verse to mean that there is a great virtue and blessing in not getting married. Because if you get married, then you aren't one of those people who has left all to follow Jesus. And they interpret those who have left their wives as a mandate that you should not get married if you enter the priesthood. Jesus said it himself right there in the text, didn't he? I mean, isn't that what he said? If you've left your wives, you'll, you'll be blessed. See? And here's the important point to not miss. Whenever false doctrines are taught, they are always sprinkled with truth. It's kind of like salt on bland food that makes it more palatable. Like those gel coat you know, aspirin, that go down easier. They just put a little bit of truth around there, and it makes you think, well, well, okay, and you swallow it. But let's look at the text a little closer, make some comments, ask some more questions, look at some other cross-references, and see if this is what Jesus was really saying. Was Jesus really saying here, priests shouldn't get married. First, it must be noted that Jesus is speaking about those who... We're already married. I mean, isn't that what he said? Those who have left wives, which they already had, is what he's talking about, in order to follow Christ. Celibacy is never mentioned in the text. Second, Jesus is talking about commitment to him. If you were to look at the near context, this is what you'd find. You'd find Jesus' discussion with the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus. um, You know, uh, what must I do to get eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He's self-deluded. He says, I've kept them all. And Jesus goes, oh my, he's really deluded. Okay, well then I'll tell you this. Why don't you give up all your riches to the poor and then come follow me and then you can have eternal life? And what he does is he exposes this man's God. This man is saying, I love God more than anything else, and I have obeyed him fully. So Jesus says, okay, if you've obeyed him fully, then get rid of all your riches and follow me. But you see, the man loved his money more than God and was unwilling to part with it, and it showed that money was his God, and so he didn't do that. This prompted the disciples then to ask the question, well, well, Lord, we've left our homes and followed you. What's in it for us? And that led to Jesus' whole discussion. Jesus is just saying, Listen, Peter, don't worry about it. God's not going to be your debtor. Not either in this life or the age to come. He is going to recompense you way more than you ever deserved. And so don't worry about that. If you've left your wife, if you've left your children, if you've left anything to follow me, God will pay you back. Now, now, The third thing we want to note is Peter is not saying none of us apostles were married. Nor was he saying we all divorced our wives and abounded our children. He's not saying that either. Peter was saying that they had sacrificed. I mean, Jesus for a long time um, ministered out of Capernaum where... Peter lived in that area by the sea, and so Peter was able to go home. But when Jesus was traveling around, Peter had to leave his home. I mean, he couldn't go home every night. You know, they're walking around Palestine doing miracles and watching Jesus preach. And, you know, they're, they're following him around. So they had to leave their homes for, at times, to go minister. And that was a sacrifice because they could not go home to their wife and their kids every night. But Jesus is not speaking against the Word of God, which clearly teaches that husbands are to love their wives and cherish their wives and nurture their wives, love their wives like Christ loved the church, and that anyone who does not care for his own family has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. He's not speaking against that. Because then you would be contradicting the very word that he spoke. Fourth, the Scripture explicitly says that Peter and the other apostles had wives. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 9.5. Now listen to what this says. This is Paul, and he's speaking of himself and the rest of the apostles, and he says this, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Now people, that isn't celibacy. Paul says, hey, don't we have a right to get married? Don't we we have a right to have a believing wife? Don't we have a right to take them around as we do ministry? Don't we have that right? Just as the rest of the apostles all do, and the half-brothers of Christ, and, which is ironic, he points out, Peter, Cephas, specifically, you know, the first pope, that he had a wife. So, when you begin to look at this, you begin to see that there's some problems with mandating celibacy. But they say, hey, 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 hey. That's not all. I mean, now it's just one verse. You need to go to 1 Corinthians 7. So, turn there. 1 Corinthians 7. This is a text on marriage. Paul's addressing, um, he's he's basically taking what Jesus taught in the Gospels and just unpacking it and explaining it in more detail. And they would say, look at 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 34. And look at what Paul says there. Paul says, but I want you to be free from concern. The one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord and how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how she may please her husband. See? See, I mean they would say, look at that. What's wrong with you? I mean, isn't the world bad? Isn't all that is in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life come from the world? Isn't that world system evil? Are we to, you know, he who loves the world is an enemy of God. And so, if you're married, you have to love the world and that's evil and so don't get married. Now that seems great. If you don't read the context, Let's look at the context. Look up at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 7. Notice what he says there. Now, concerning the things about which I wrote you, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, if you have an NIV and it says Mary there, you could just scratch that out and put touch. It does not mean that phrase is never interpreted Mary anywhere in the Bible. It is, if you don't, if you don't, You you shouldn't touch a woman so as to ignite yourself into flames, is really what it means. It's the same word that Paul used when I think he was at Malta. And it says, and he touched off the fire. He took a stick, he put it, and it started a fire. It ignited into flames. It is to touch so as to ignite. And he's saying this here. Now concerning the things about which I wrote you, men, keep your hands off the women so you won't get ignited into flames. And he says, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband because that is the the realm, the sphere in which a physical relationship is acceptable to God. But notice, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. That's what he says in verse 2. And so he explains then in the verses following um, through verse 6 that The wife and the husband are to fulfill their physical relationship in marriage. And then he says this in verse 7. Look at there. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Now think about this. Paul is saying each man has his own what? Gift. Now who gives those gifts? Do we give those gifts to us? No. Those gifts are given by who? God. And so we can't force ourselves to have a gift. We can only get what God gives us. And some people, true, have the gift of singleness. Some people can function. They aren't always consumed with lust and passion and desires. And they don't want to be married. They're just doing fine. Those are the rare exception. Those are the few people like the Apostle Paul who who don't need to get married. And Paul is saying, hey, if you have the gift of singleness, don't let anybody tell you you have to get married because you don't. But look at verse 9. This is his advice to those who do not have the gift. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Here we have the strongest command in the Greece, Greek, an heiress active imperative. If you have a problem with continual temptation in the sexual area, that you're, you, you're always fighting lust and temptation in that area, and I have a hard time maintaining self-control, God commands you, you get married. Because that is the sphere which God says the physical relationship is is acceptable get married and of course it would have to be as in verse 39 someone who is in the Lord another believer so you see there is nothing wrong with being single that's a gift from God but there is also nothing wrong with being married it is just a spiritual estate it is just as holy it was created by God and it is a very good and perfect thing when we submit to God's Word and His regulations for Mary. But if you don't have self-control, if you're constantly plagued with sexual desires, the Scriptures command you, get married. So to say that marriage should be abstained from is to contradict the direct command of the Word of God. So, when you look at this, you begin to see... So I'm I'm catching on here. So you take a person who doesn't have the gift of singleness and you tell them you have to be single in order to please God. And what does that do to that person? It sets them up for what? Immorality. And that is why, when you look at all these groups who have practiced any form, and I'm not just talking about those who advocate abstaining from marriage, I'm talking about even very conservative Christian groups who add to the Scriptures, who make additional rules to the Word of God, you will find this one common thing. They are plagued by avarice and, and fornication and adultery and homosexuality. Why? Because there is no strength against sexual passions by fighting against it with man-made religion. You've got to apply God's means of grace, otherwise you cannot overcome them. And this is why throughout history, you see ascetic groups constantly plagued with the very thing they speak out against. Anyone who goes out of Scripture, who sets up a false standard of worship... Or sanctification is a hypocritical life speaker. They are speaking the doctrines of demons. Now, the second demonic doctrine mentioned in the text, look back at 1 Timothy, is these men who advocate abstaining from foods. Now, this really seems benign. I mean, when you think about it, you know, so, you know, I don't eat celery. So I don't let myself eat ice cream when I go to bed you know i say no to the second helping of pie is that what they're talking about here well that's not what paul's talking about he's not saying no to the second helping of mashed potatoes he's not saying mo- uh, he's not speaking against modifying your diet for for health reasons he's not saying that at all he's not saying don't have your favorite dessert if you say that then you're doctrines of demons what paul is talking about here is the false belief that either what we eat or what we do not eat in this case, makes us more acceptable to God. And, just like abstaining from marriage, there's some elements to truth to this. I mean, when you think about it, you can go through the scriptures and find little bits of truth to sprinkle on this so it's more palatable. I mean, Jesus talked about fasting, and he didn't condemn it. He didn't say anything except to say, if you fast, don't let anybody know. That's what ekes me when I get these little brochures in the mail. Come to this you know, prayer and fasting conference. Well, you're not supposed to let anybody know. So why would I go with a group of people who all know you're all fasting and get together and fast and talk about how you're being spiritual because you're fasting? It's the very thing Jesus speaks against. And also, the Scriptures say not to get drunk in Ephesians 5.18. And in many places, the Scriptures warn against gluttony like Proverbs 23.21. And those things are true. And besides, you could go to Leviticus and you could see in God's perfect law that that He, in Leviticus 11, set up all these food regulations, clean and unclean. I mean, when you think about it, those regulations are scary. You can't eat shrimp, lobster, scallops. You couldn't eat any scallops? You couldn't have catfish, blackened catfish, because they're fish that don't have scales. What's really scary is, is when you realize that you can't eat bugs unless they crawl on all fours, have jointed legs, and hop on the earth. And that's really disappointing. Because there's some of those bugs you look at and you just want to eat them right down. Some of those beetles. And you're thinking, ah, they just, they aren't jumpers. Sorry. But the good news is, is that you can eat any bugs you want. So some conclude that, well, you know, you can't drink anything with alcohol in it. You know, you shouldn't eat any meat. You can't have chocolate cake on Tuesdays or whatever. They begin to regulate. If you drink caffeine, you're in sin. You can't have coffee. You can't have any drinks with caffeine. Yet nowhere are we commanded to fast. Only if we do fast, to not let anybody know about it. We are commanded to not get drunk, but we are not commanded not to drink. The scriptures tell us how much, they don't tell us how much we can eat, but they do say, don't be gluttonous. And as soon as you go beyond the scriptures, and you begin to add truths to the word of God, they become like barnacles that extend beyond the whole of scripture. And they're sharp, and they're nasty, and they tear people up. And people then take these additions to the scripture, and they hang themselves on them. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Paul had to deal with this when he wrote to the Colossians. And he battled a whole bunch of errors there, but this was one of them because there were some Judaizers there. But look at Colossians 2 verse 20. And this, he just nails it here. This whole asceticism business, this legalism If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. But, notice what he says there, are of no value against fleshly indulgence. As soon as you start adding to the scriptures so you can maintain purity, you are trusting in something which has no value against the sins of which you are trying to avoid. You see, you cannot be sanctified in the flesh. And when someone tells you that you must abstain from eating certain foods in order to be right with God, they are legalists. They are teaching the doctrines of demons. Do you remember what happened to Peter in Acts chapter 10? You can turn over to Acts chapter 10. In Acts 10, Peter is getting ready to have a meal... He goes up on the roof to pray, according to verse 9 of Acts 10. And then he says this, But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were, in all kinds of it, four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Get up, Peter! Kill and eat! But Peter said, By no means, Lord! Now this is amazes me. You know, Peter is good at doing this. I mean, we just read this morning what happened when Isaiah you know, saw the Lord. He fell on the ground and said, you know, Woe is me, for I am ruined. But Peter, he's, he's bold. No, Lord. And then look at what it says. For I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Peter was told by God, Peter, just eat anything you want. You see, Peter was having problems. If you remember in Galatians where Paul talks about how he withstood Peter to his face and how he had to rebuke him, you remember why? Because Peter was being a hypocrite. Do you remember why? Because he was hanging around the, the Gentiles and eating ham sandwiches and whatever. And then as soon as he got around the, the Jews, all of a sudden he was Mr. Coacher Kitchen and, you know, not doing anything and kind of looking down, all oh, those Gentiles, look at that. You know, that, that, that wasn't blessed by the rabbi. And so Paul was stood him to the face because he was acting as if what people ate actually made them more right before God. And so Paul rebuked him to his face. In Mark 7, and we can't read the whole thing, but in verses 19 through 20, Jesus declared all foods to be clean. So you can eat any bugs you want. It's not what we put inside of us, Jesus says, that defiles us, but what comes out from the heart. And we have seen that forbidding people to marry and advocating that people abstain from foods, they're doctrines of demons. Why? Because they violate God's means of grace. They contradict His word. They go against walking in the Spirit. They are not something we can give thanks for because God didn't give us error to imbibe in. We can't pray about, Lord, help me rebel against you. You see, all of those things are violated. That's why they can't match up with sanctification by grace. They are false systems. So we need to be beware of those things that bind our conscience with man-made rules. Now, I just want to say something here before we close, and that's this. What I'm not talking about is personal convictions. Every one of us needs to have personal convictions. Every one of us needs to understand our heart and our weaknesses, and we need to do whatever we need to do to make sure we don't fall into sin. I mean, Jesus taught, you know, if you're right eye, cause you to stumble, you gouge it out, you cut off your hand, you chop off your foot, go to whatever lengths it takes not to sin. And so I have some weaknesses, and I know where those weaknesses are, and I know what I can and can't, just by personal experience, do or not do, because I'm tempted. So I choose not to do those things. That's fine, that's good, and every one of us should practice that. We should know our own weakness and fortify ourselves against our own weaknesses and have personal convictions, but... As soon as I say, now, you need to have my convictions. Because if you don't, you are sinning. Then I've become a legalist. Then I've gone beyond the means of scripture. Then I'm trying to add to the scriptures and tell you that if you are going to be sanctified, you need to keep my rules. And that is what this ter- this text speech speaks against. So we need to be careful that we aren't doing that ourselves. You know, somebody grows up in a house, and your mom and dad tell you that you know that the jack is Satan and the queen is a demon, and if you play cards, you know you'll get spiritual cooties on you. (laughs) And uh, and we laugh, but you know that's standard fare in some circles. That boys and girls can't swim together. That uh, you know you can't hold hands in public. And yet. There are some wisdom about that. There's wisdom. There's things in the Scripture which talk about, you know, a man's not to touch a woman. So you have to take the principles of God's Word and you have to understand them clearly in their context, and then you have to apply them to your own life and set up whatever rules you need to set up in your life to guard your own heart for from it full of springs of life. But as soon as you begin to take your personal convictions and foist them upon other people, doctrines of demons, man made religion, sanctification by works which is really just unsanctification and sin. So you need to ask yourself am I promoting man-made religions? We need to be careful not to do that. And since we started with Charles Spurgeon I'd like to finish with him. Spurgeon said this under what sacred obligations do we stand to maintain the statutes and testimonies of the Lord And oh, how the king is dishonored by the mutilation and misrepresentation of his word. Therefore, dear brethren, we are always bound to bear our protest against such false doctrine. I am sometimes accused of saying sharp things. The charge does not come home to my conscience with very great power. If anybody said I spoke smooth things, I think it would oppress me a great deal more. As long as there are evils in the world, God's ministers are bound to protest against them. That man who, as he goes through the world, can say, Hail, fellow, well met with everybody, and extol the modern Diana of charity, the universal charity, the false charity, the charity towards the false, that man, when he comes to stand before his maker, will find it hard to give in his account. And these days, when nobody believes anything, when everybody has subscribed to the belief that black is white and white is black and colors are nothing at all but imaginary distinctions, it is time that somebody should believe something, and a little sharpness of speech might not only be excused but commended. If we had but men who spoke what they did know and testify honestly to the truth which they had received... Everyone here present who is maintained from the king's palace is bound to fight against every doctrine which insults the king. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we take Spurgeon's words to heart that everyone who is fed from your table needs to be bound to speak against those things that insult you. Father, may we be a church of purity, of truth. A church that loves your truth and wants to walk in it with a whole heart and a willing mind. Not in the power of our flesh. Not relying on our own man-made religion. But Father, may we take those gracious resources that you have given us. And apply them diligently that we might be sanctified by grace. Father, we beg you. To help us pursue holiness without which no one will see you, to pursue sanctification, and Father, to be zealous for those deeds which give you glory and honor, not in the power of the flesh, but Father, in the power of your spirit, not by our strength or my our might, but by your spirit. And Father, we pray that you would expose those in our midst who arise and are like savage wolves, not sparing the flock, that we would see them for what they are, that we would be quick to reprove them, and try to restore them, but if they will not have it, to reject them. And Father, we pray that you would help us keep guard from those who come in from without, and spread false doctrines. Father, we want to be like the church of Ephesus, Strong in doctrine, but not like them, and that we don't want to leave our first love. So, Father, help all of us to be diligent, to study your word, to constantly rely on you in prayer, to walk in your spirit, to be grateful for all we have, and to trust only in you and your resources to live the life which only you can build in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.